Well, um, um, I'm in my silent mode (laughs) these days, which happens periodically. So I thought I'd ask you to help me to create a talk. So I'd like you to consider what you would like me to talk about tonight. And then I'll take some themes and see where it goes from there. So think about what would be most interesting for you or most fun or most vital, most enlivening, most profound, most superficial, most, I don't know, whatever interests you. You know, partly, sometimes I I come and I actually don't have much to say, but I'm really curious or interested in whatever you want to talk about. And so this is an opportunity really for us to co-create the talk. Intensive retreats. Intensive retreats, okay. And what what part of intensive retreat, given you've just come off an intensive retreat? Great. How it deepens practice. Also doubting mind, I think. Uh-huh. That's what happened to me in my life. Doubting mind. Okay. Is there really such a thing as uh, healthy addiction, or is it just an oxymoron? Is there such a thing as healthy addiction? <laughs> Why meditate as a community? I mean, are there other reasons as just creating community? Why meditate? Yeah. Why meditate as a community? Um. Okay. Okay. Doing nothing. Doing nothing. Doing something. Uh-huh. Doing nothing as opposed to doing something? Doing something. Doing nothing is doing something? Right. The paradox. Well, if you're really not doing anything. <laughs> if, maybe you are. Maybe you aren't. Okay. <laughs> The fourth foundation of mindfulness. Okay. Okay, whole body breathing. Oh, thank you. You're reminding me. There are a number of books that we put out, and they're free books. They're gifts from Tanisaro Beku, who's come here and taught and has been one of my teachers over the last few years. I don't know if they're all gone already. Um, but these were two of them, and this one is the description of whole body breathing, right? This is called keeping the breath in mind, and it gives the in some detail uh, what I refer to kind of a shorthand, this whole body breathing. And I can say some more. This other one is about mindfulness of the body, which really supports the whole body breathing. Anyhow, they're both good books, and if people are interested and they're all gone, let me know and he's happy to send us more. Okay. So true compassion and false compassion. Okay. Expectation, disappointment, and hope. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) 
I miss the second part, right speech, and balancing it with. I guess I don't know a lot about right speech, but uh, sometimes vent or. Vent? Yeah. Yeah. So, how to vent with right speech. Okay. <laughs> no, it's possible. <laughs> We're getting a lot here. Differences between Theravadan and Zen practice. And is there anything specific, because it's really a big topic, is there anything specifically why you're asking, or just, I could go anywhere with that? Okay, I'll go anywhere. That's good. Okay. Let's see. Let's see. Returning from what? Returning from Iraq or Afghanistan, returning to a normal life. Aha. Uh-huh. Reintegrating um, from Iraq. Okay. I'm stop there and see where to go. Oh, since a number of people have just come off intensive retreat, I thought I would just start there. And the question was about how it deepens one's practice. And um, traditionally, um, one uh, lived in a community where intensive retreat was part of the activity of that community. So in the monastic community, one lived in a community lived a kind of somewhat um, somewhat uh, unconventional life already, right? So the, the monastic community has certain rules and strictures and um, uh, rituals and ways of being that is already unconventional by you know the normal uh, societal understanding. And then within that, there would be regular time for intensive practice or intensive um, solitude or intensive retreat. And so, um, so it was, um, um, in some sense, a very beautiful um, flow of practice with certain intensities, but never really the um, movement that we see coming from intensive retreat and then ending up in Union Square. <laughs> that's, that's a whole different demand. You know, it's like going from here to here. Before it was like this more. And now we actually have a very different experience because we're living it as lay people and we're really practicing in a way that has only been going on for about 50 years that I know of. That it, it's not the whole history of Buddhism is rare for lay people to practice intensively. They practice in many other ways, especially with the precepts and around generosity and dana and service, but not in terms of intensive meditation practice. Um, 
and it wasn't until the mid-50s in the last century that I believe Mahasi Sayadaw or Uba Kin, both teachers in Burma, started opening up the retreats for lay people. And so um, now what we have is um, a life as a lay person and then going for solitude, going to live in an intensive retreat and um, dipping very deeply looking very um, intimately at the nature of one's own mind and heart in a very intense way. Intense, intensive retreat is a good name for intensive retreats. They're, they're intense. And they're not intense because you're doing anything strenuous. They're intense because we're intense in some ways. Our reality is very powerful. Our conditioning is very powerful. And what it, in, the reason intensive retreats are intense is because it, just by nature of their form, they take away a lot of the buffering between us and ourselves, between us and our experience. They're, they're very raw. They're very naked. They're very bare. And the bareness is not anything... It's just simply there's no TV, there's no radio, there's no computer, there's no Blackberry, there's no, you know, there's no music, there's no entertainment, there's no... There's simply learning, training, which mindfulness is a beautiful training in how to be with the human experience as it shows up here in, in all these different forms, meaning us. And that's intense. It's intense, especially at first. How many people was your first retreat? Intensive retreat, yeah. Was it intense? Okay. Yeah, it is. It's really, it's actually a, a, a certain kind of rite of passage, uh, a first retreat. And then every retreat is a little bit of rite of passage. It's always like, you know, traditionally the shamans would always talk about the descent into the underworld as part of the movement towards reality. And, and it's one way you could think about a retreat. There's a certain kind of descent into ourselves, into our experience. And it's um, um, beautiful, it's profound, it's difficult, uh, it's freeing, and the integration of it is its own art. To integrate a retreat, actually, it's not even exactly like, oh, we do it. It'll, it'll happen, but it somewhat happens over time. And then learning how to allow retreats to integrate within us becomes as an art. And the, the art is mostly learning to let go of the intensity of the retreat and the... And the attachment to the beauty and the clarity uh, of what we see, of what we find. It's not called insight meditation just, you know, to get people in. It's, it's called insight meditation because insights actually happen. And they don't necessarily happen how we think, oh, we're going to sit, 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 and boom, something happens. That, that does happen. That can definitely happen. But also the insight is starting to see who and what we are, to see the beauty of what we are. The, and this is a funny word to use, I don't use it so often, but it's true, the purity of what we are, the goodness of what we are, the depth of what we are, who we are, the range, the depth, the, the really uh, a breadth of the human heart and the human mind. It's actually limitless, both. They're limitless. And our conditioning, we, we, we become limited. We think we're limited. We take ourselves to be limited. And, and one of the insights is just to have a taste of how untrue that is, that we're actually not limited. Uh, you know, I remember there's two things that got me to my first retreat. One was I had a big insight um, somewhere else where I was um, a little bit bereft at seeing how much my heart had hardened between the ages of 19 and 29. And then, you know, life had its dukkha, its suffering, right? And pain. And, 
And I'd seen that my heart had hardened, and I wanted—I I didn't want that to happen. And it was happening. It wasn't—you know—it wasn't like I could control it. And I was actually contemplating what to do. I, I've told this story before. I was actually um, at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. And I was kind of hanging out. I wasn't exactly praying. sound effects, you know. Um, yeah, a little wailing happening. Um, um, I wasn't actually praying, but I was just hanging out, you know, I'd like to be around sacred places all over the world. And, um, and so I was hanging out, and you know, you put your hands on the wall, and, and all of a sudden it just hit me that I needed to meditate. That's what I needed to do for my heart. And I came back and found the meditation teacher, and that's, that's how I started to meditate. But I didn't go on intensive retreat for a while until a friend of mine went on a Zen Sashin. And he went on a Sashin, he's my best friend, oh, we'd been friends for years, we'd been hippies together, and lived on commune, and did drugs, everything. And, and he went on this retreat, and when it was done, the seven-day Sashin at Zen Center, I picked him up, and he came over to have, you know, a cup of tea and kind of download, right, after the retreat. And we're talking, and at some point, he laughed, and he laughed so deeply, and it was so unheld, it was so beautiful, and I thought, I want that. (laughs) I want that. And whatever concerns I had about going on a retreat... Okay, I'm going to go. Because I saw him, and I really knew him, and I just saw how free he was, actually, just to laugh from the depth of him. And it was, it was inspiring. So, intensive retreat, has, it, you, will, you will glimpse both the depth of what's possible, who we are, and also... I, I don't want to um, Pollyanna it at all. You will also glimpse the depth of your suffering, of human suffering. It's not just your suffering, but of, of what we as human beings experience that is suffering. The fear, the hatred, the anger, the contraction, the doubt, the, the um, confusion, the wanting, the not wanting, the the needing to be seen and to have a self and to have it shored up and to have it recognized and then see it's all empty and it all changes in a moment. We can't control anything, really. And that can be very difficult at times on retreat. It's why the mindfulness practice is so important. It's why the loving kindness and compassion practices are so important when we go on intensive retreat because they're the skillful means that really are the they're the artist's palette of how to be with human experience. They're the skillful, they're the training, the tools, so that we have the capacity to be with what the Taoists call the 10,000 joys and, and sorrows of human life. And they're all right here. They're all right here for each of us because we are a, a microcosm of the macrocosm of what it is to be a human being. The whole Dharma is sitting here in your seat. And to go on retreat means you will study the Dharma by studying yourself, by paying attention to your experience and seeing the whole range of heaven and hell. And within that, beginning to see that we have the capacity, we have the skills, we have the heart and the, and the wisdom to be with the totality of that experience. And not only to be with it, but there's something more that the Dharma offers, and it's really to liberate us, to free us, to maybe bring us to a freedom we don't even know is possible. Suzuki Roshi, when he talked about enlightenment, he said, enlightenment is not a state of mind. It's not based on having... We begin to see that our freedom and our suffering is not based on having a certain experience, but that there is something greater than that. 
something freer than that. And the Buddha talked about it in terms of conditions. One of the things on, on uh, intensive retreat is that um, we start to see the changing nature of conditions all the time. And how we, we with the same experience, we might be uh, uh, in agony or we might be totally fine. And so we start to see that our, our freedom is not based on the conditions. Actually, it's, it's a little aside, but when Spirit Rock was built, Ajahn Amaro came, came to see it. And he was like, you know, and Spirit Rock, especially at that time, was the cutting edge in, in meditation retreat centers. And really still is. It's pretty cushy as retreat centers go. I mean, it really is very comfortable. And he said, oh, it's going to be really hard for people here. <laughs> and we said, well, what do you mean? He said, oh, they won't be able to blame it on the conditions. Where, <laughs> right? you know, if you're sleeping on a hard bed and it's the, it's, you're eating gruel and, you know, it's easier to think it's the, it's the conditions, but you can't. You've got a nice room and it's warm and it's comfy and it's... <laughs> And there's still dukkha. And there's still dukkha. So intensive retreat is a beautiful way to begin to understand ourselves, learn about ourselves, learn about the uh, depth and possibility and potentiality of where mindfulness practice can go. And then to begin to see what it's like to come back and live our lives with that understanding. And it doesn't mean that, and because the conditions change, of course, the internal experience will change. It's not, there's a certain depth of concentration and quietness that will come on a retreat, even when it's difficult. And that generally doesn't sustain in the same way when we're back. Um, And there's a whole art to coming in and out of retreat. And some people, you'll find some people, we call them uh, dharma bums, generally. Um, you know, they're just, they're just going in and out of retreat. And people will do it for a few years sometimes, or a number of years, and um, make, kind of make enough money to go back on retreat for a long time, and then come back and be in the world for a while, and then go back on retreat. And I was um, talking with one of my friends, Mark Coleman, a teacher who... And we were talking about his process, understanding, maturation. I, I think it's okay to say this. He did, at one point he did three three-month retreats. And then he didn't do any retreat for a long time. And what we were talking about was, or he didn't do any intensive retreat like that, really. But what we were talking about was now, and this is some ten years later, seeing the impact of those three three-month retreats. Now we really see the impact of the maturity from those retreats. And sometimes you can't even see the impact at first. You're, you're too close up to the retreat. It might take, uh, and definitely if, if you're just coming off your first retreat, give it a week, two, a month, to keep getting perspective about what it is. And maybe you won't even know until you do one or two or three more retreats because it's entering a whole world intensive retreat. And uh, it's probably a really bad analogy. Yeah, I don't think I can use that analogy. (laughs) I get in too much trouble if I use that analogy. I was going to compare it to taking psychedelics, but I I don't think that's that's not a good analogy. Let's see if we can... Here, I'll I'll, I'll just say this. Um, it's a certain level of altered state of consciousness that comes with retreat. And it's not exactly like taking drugs, but what it is, is we start to see what's called the leela of consciousness, which is the play of consciousness. That our consciousness gets so boxed in, in our day-to-day life often. doesn't have to be that way, but often that's what it, it gets very limited, very narrow, very constricted. And to go on retreat, all of a sudden we start to see, whoa, this, is, this is, may not be the way we think it is. Reality, who we are, may not be the way we've been taking it to be. 
Actually, it's summed up very beautifully in a Buddhist scripture text called the Lankavatara Sutra. They say, things are not what they seem, nor are they otherwise. <laughs> and that, that starts to point to the mysterious nature and the breadth of consciousness and I mean, I have to say, I, you know, I may give this whole talk an intensive retreat. <laughs> but, but, I mean, it's fun, part of that. Part of that, you know, just seeing what consciousness can do. It's exciting. It's inspiring. It's scary at sometimes. It's off-putting once in a while. You know, it may take a little getting used to. But then seeing, you know, even our idea of body just dissolve, the whole body just can dissolve like it's nothing. But we're here, and we know we're here, and we're awake to being here, and we're awake to the body, but it's not a body, it's not this solid, you know, fixed thing, how we take it, how we conceptualize it, how we use it, how we think about it. But when it becomes this living reality, and actually whole body breathing, it really su- will support this. I mean, it's, it's, it's energy, pure energy. It's just an aliveness. There's no solidity at all, really. And that's an interesting state of consciousness to have. <laughs> I'm actually about to go sit for a month. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm a little inspired and inspiring myself. I'm happy to be going. I'm looking forward to going. Where are you going? I'm going to uh, the Forest Refuge, which is a hermitage that we have now at IMS back east. And, and the Forest Refuge has usurped Spirit Rock as the cutting edge in Retreat Center. It's small. It's a, I think there's no more than 30 people. And it's everybody, you're, only, you're doing a self-retreat. And so it's not a retreat like a formed retreat, um, like the retreats at Spirit Rock or at IMS. And it, um, I mean, just to give you an idea, the retreat center, the corks are, the, the floor is made out of corks, cork. So it's very quiet when you do your walking meditation. It's really the silence in this retreat center. You walk in and your, your mind just goes, and it, it's beautiful. And so I'll tie in one piece. Somebody asked about why sit together. Um, one of the powers that I think, especially the people who've just come off retreat, see, and even it happens here, I feel it here, is that there's something that happens here that's different than sitting alone. And it's not just, oh, it's nice to be together or we're just building community. There's something a little more mystical than that, actually. Although it's not considered mystical at all in Buddhism. Um, it, in, the, in the Christian tradition, it's described as um, when, one, when two or more are gathered in thy, thy name, there's a certain exponential, exponential, exponential um, power that's there. And that's true. And it's something about us being together in this way with a certain intention and a certain consciousness it has a power that's bigger than any one of us. And so it has the ability, in addition to just inspiring us in terms of seeing other people practice and on retreat, one of the things that's really helpful is just seeing other people sit and walk because there are times when you feel like, I don't want to do this at all, and you see other people, and you know it's doable. Even if you're having a hard time, they're doing it helps you, supports each of us. But, but there's also a field of consciousness. You know, and I, I don't talk about this much because I, don't, I know it's true, but I don't know what else to say except there's this field of consciousness and it has a power to it. And it has a presence to it. And, and actually you can tell as a teacher, one of the most interesting things is being sensitive to different groups. And if you're sitting in the group in the beginning class, 
the field feels one way. And then you come here, I come here on Sunday night, it feels another way. And then I'm on retreat at Spirit Rock, and the first day of retreat, it feels one way. And the fifth day of retreat, it feels very different. And the third week of retreat, it's at a whole different level. The, you know, by, you know, I've taught the, I taught the two-month course many years, and um, by the, I, be, I usually was teaching the second month of the two-month course. By the sixth week, there'd be, there'd be about a third of me or, or half of the people had been sitting for six weeks. Walking in just to the meditation hall, it's a free ride. <laughs> I'm serious. You know, I could be doing anything, and then I'd come in, and, and that's partly what I'm saying also about the forest refuge. You feel the power. People aren't even there, and you can feel there's something that happens in a sacred space and because of all of us practicing together. And it's, I'm gonna, this is awesome. I'm going to do a little aside here, but it's also why it would be really beautiful someday to have our own center here in the city. It would be really beautiful to have our own center. My fantasy is this, my, and it's coming, it'll happen at some point, but my fantasy is this, not only do we have our group here, but we have, let's say, Vinny's group, at the, at a, we'd have a center, and different groups would have their own night. And so the, the, the space, we could make it beautiful, and we could allow the, um, the power of our practice to really imbue the space. And if you're interested in, in that, there'll be more, in the next, somewhere in the next year, there's gonna be more about this idea. Uh, I, I think it's time has come. Uh, there's a lot happening, and there's a lot more that's gonna be happening here in the city. Um, so anyhow, that's a little aside. Um, so intensive retreat, it's an adventure. That's the one other thing to say. You know, if you like traveling, this is, this is interior travel. And, and similar to going to a new place, what's cool is, what I really like, is that every time you do a retreat, it's like going to a new place. It's really something different because you're not the same person you were. And we, we, we go in thinking we are the same person and we really see we're not. And there's one other thing I'll say about intensive retreat that I've seen over years and years of many retreats. And this is especially for the people who just went on retreat or first retreat, or is sometimes people get afraid they're going to lose what they got on intensive retreat. And there's a few different instructions about that. One is lose it. You know, lose it. It's okay. If, if it can be lost, you don't need to hold on to it anyways. <laughs> Really, because what's true, you'll never lose. But also, you don't start from the beginning again in your next retreat. And I've seen this really, and especially after a few retreats, you start where you end it. The first day or two can still be hard and difficult and hindrances and all that, but there's something in your psyche, in the consciousness itself, that just starts to continue from the last retreat. So, is there a healthy addiction to long retreats? <laughs> we could consider that question. Is there such a thing as healthy addiction to the Dharma? We know that there's unhealthy addiction. I don't think I have to say anything about that, right? But the Buddha did talk about one fortunate attachment. So, and, and, and in Buddhism, um, 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 craving uh, solidifies into clinging, which is really how Buddhism talks about addiction. That, 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 that it's a solidification of craving and clinging. And then there's addiction. And, um, and but it was, it's very interesting that the Buddha had this one teaching where he said, there's one fortunate attachment. And I'm, I'm using attachment and clinging synonymously. 
and what he and really what he's saying is that there's a skillful attachment at a certain time in practice and the attachment or the uh, addiction well let, let me put it this way the um, the yearning the wanting the craving for freedom is an important uh, craving it's an, it's an important want it's con- actually considered a skillful want it wouldn't, it wouldn't even technically be called clinging at all it's considered skillful and it's skillful to turn us towards what's most important to really motivate us to really let us follow our heart towards freedom and at a certain point it has its limitation and so is there a healthy addiction maybe maybe let's put it that way you know maybe but I've seen people's addiction to silent retreat or this especially the silence I've seen people have you know addiction to the silence and you know maybe for a while that's skillful or helpful or needed for somebody but at a certain point that's a limitation at a certain point any addiction any craving is a limitation for example for many years I sat on a cushion right and probably at least 15 years I had pain in my legs and at some point I broke my knee and I started sitting not sitting not while I was sitting I broke it bike riding <laughs> somebody got nervous over here when I said that um, um, really um and so I was started sitting in a chair, and I realized I was attached to sitting on the cushion. And I was attached in a few ways. One is, it looks much cooler. <laughs> you know, I mean, look, it's total zen, right? You, you know, it looks nice. Looks, it looks like you're meditating if you're sitting down, no matter what you're doing, right? Um, and also, I, I was actually, and this may sound odd, but I was a little attached to the pain in my legs because I knew how to work with it really well and I knew how to get deeply concentrated through the pain. And when you get deeply concentrated, actually the pain um, dissolves in a certain way or it doesn't become so... Uh, it's there, but we don't have the same reaction and it keeps us very... Pain is very compelling. And so we can get very, very focused. Um, and I, I was a little attached to my, that level of concentration through the pain. Now, you know, and then I learned how to get to that level of concentration, not through pain. But first I had to just get off the cushion and realize, oh, this is great to sit in a chair. My legs don't hurt anymore. And, and um, personally, now, I would put couches in the meditation hall. I, I think... I think, because um, I've seen it many times where people feel like oh, they can't meditate if they're not on a cushion. And that's a limitation. Any, any identification like that is a prison, ultimately. It can be skillful for a while, and you can, if you enjoy sitting on a cushion, sit on it forever. But don't not meditate when you're sitting on the bus because you don't have a cushion. Don't not meditate when you're home with your family and they're driving you crazy. Right in the middle, meditate there. Meditate right now while we're talking and listening. Don't limit your meditation to shutting your eyes and being silent. Um, somebody asked about returning from um, a difficult situation like or traumatic situation intense situation like from one of the many many places on the earth that are intense suffering Iraq Darfur Africa you know places here in America if you open your eyes Uh, if we really and so the question for me is a little bit if we really open to the suffering in this world, how do we live a, a kind of normal life? Is that possible? 
And I mean, I was just reading Amnesty International, you know, they're what they send you if you're a member. Oi, I mean, the world, what a mess. And I don't know if we can live a normal life, actually. I do know that we can still enjoy life, but I don't know we can live a normal life. I don't know that we can just go about our business without responding in some way, shape, or form to the suffering that we know, that we've seen. That's, that's here. And there's no rules about how that response needs to be. Sometimes people have a lot of ideas that they have to do something in a certain way. And I, I don't hold to that. And I don't see that in the Buddhist teaching at all. What the Buddhist teaching does encourage us to do is really keep our eyes open. To really look. And to really be willing to see suffering. And that's one reason why we go on intensive retreat. It is one of the things we study is suffering. To see and to see that we have the capacity to open to the heartbreak of human life and the tragedy of human life and the, the unfathomable, really, sorrow of human life. And the compassion, let's put it this way, it's not possible without compassion. It's not compassion for our own suffering, for our own heartache, for our own fear, for our own confusion, for our own reaction, rage. We, compassion has to start right here. And then, of course, as um, I believe Longfellow said, you know, if we could read the secret history of our enemy, we would find sorrow and suffering enough to diminish any animosity. You know, if we really look, if we really see with the eye of wisdom, then we will not only see our own suffering, but we will see the suffering of Everyone, actually. You could look around this room and if you really looked, you will see the suffering. It's, it's on all our faces. It's part of human life. And then, when, and part of the, the um, understanding is, if we're willing to look at suffering and stay open, then the heart will respond naturally, authentically, with compassion. My, the only difference I understand between true compassion and false compassion is true compassion is, is simply our heart responding to suffering. And false compassion is the idea that we're supposed to be compassionate. That that idea, it's a nice idea, but it's not how real compassion works. Compassion is, is, is our birthright. It's our nature. And if we learn to be present, if we learn to allow the depth of who we are, we don't have to do it. We don't have to do compassion. The heart, this is the heart's truth. Love is the heart's truth. Compassion is the heart's truth. Joy is the heart's truth. It's not something we have to manufacture or create. I, okay, how am I going to do this? Um, and so, to come back means to stay open to your own sorrow and suffering for whatever you may have witnessed. And then to... Um, use the myriad skillful means that we have to support that, to um, heal that. And part of the healing is by our being willing to be present with it. And also to share it with others. 
And it's why community, again, is a very powerful phenomena. Remember, the Sangha community in Buddhism is called Sangha. And the Sangha is one of the three gems. And we don't recognize it, really. We recognize the Buddha, the Dharma, right, and the Sangha. The Buddha, it's totally a no-brainer, right? That, that just seems like a really great thing. And the Dharma, the truth of the way things are, right? But the Sangha, then we don't quite see it in the same light. But in Buddhism, that's how it's understood. It's that profound. And it's partly because of the... Um, it's, it said, sorrow shared is lessened, joy shared is multiplied. That there's a power of the Sangha, that we don't do it alone, we don't heal ourselves alone. We don't fulfill ourselves, we don't liberate ourselves alone. And so, coming back is a little bit anarchic. It's like the art of coming back from an intensive retreat. Partly it's, the, it's letting it have its impact on us and also letting it go. Even the, the suffering that we've seen, letting it come, letting it have its impact, learning how to metabolize intense experience, whatever it's been, and then learning how to let it go also. The story, one of the stories Jack Cornfield likes to tell is how when he was um, practicing with Ajahn Chah in the forest monastery and then he went off and did all these long intensive retreats and at one point he did a year long retreat, a year of silent practice. That's a good length of retreat generally. I mean, you know, that's, that's intense. And he had all these tense experience and he came back and he told Ajahn Chah and he's telling Ajahn Chah you know this happened and that happened and this happened and he said Ajahn Chah listen he said after a while Ajahn Chah said where are all your experiences now? because Ajahn Chah was about now Ajahn Chah had a very Zen flavor to him and so it's important whatever we've experienced, to let it have its impact, to learn how to digest it, but also to stay present now. And so then we might not think so much about how do we live a normal life, because the question isn't so much normal or, uh, or abnormal. The question becomes more of a Dharma question, is how do we live now? How do we stay present now? The attachment to intense experience is also an attachment. So the community piece came back once more. And I want to end, I'm forgetting your name, Shane? Shannon, thank you. Shannon, could you repeat what you said to me before? Would that be okay? So, Shannon, can I say what happened? Yeah, so Shannon came up after the sitting. She said, you know, I had a really beautiful vision after, while we were sitting. Can I tell you? And I said, sure. And, and then the vision was, and I'll repeat it so everybody could hear it. Everybody hear that? Yes? No? No. Okay. Why don't you come here and lift the mic? You, I, know, I, don't, I don't put people on the spot too often, but it's just too good to not share it. I hope it's okay. Thank you. Okay. You've got to hold the mic up. Yeah, that's good. I have been told that redwood trees um, really, in a sense, living community. They knit their roots, and that um, it gives them all more stability. But also, if one is diseased or what have you, um, 
that they will that the other trees around that tree will actually not take as much from the soil so that there is more for the um, tree that is in trouble. And um, anyway, so while we were sitting tonight, uh, I just had a very beautiful feeling um, of the power of that and sitting with everyone here was like being a tree with our roots all together and and kind of creating a canopy above together but it was just this beautiful individual and mass just gorgeous feeling of that kind of power and community and just sitting together and we just had to tell someone so I told you to <laughs> thank you so much I think that's a beautiful image for Sangha really a beautiful image for Sangha that something happens that maybe we don't see maybe it's a little underground but it's true and you can see it sometimes especially I get to see it a lot because I get to see your eyes and your faces and the beauty that's here and what happens as we practice together over an hour, a week, a year, and really our lives together. So I think let's stop here. Thank you. Let's sit for a minute before we end. May the merit of our practice together, of letting our roots be together, may we offer the merit freely, gladly, to beings in every direction, in this world and every world. May all beings be happy and peaceful. May all beings be free from suffering, from the suffering of war, fear, division, racism, confusion, greed, ignorance. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings awaken. May we awaken together. May we awaken one another. May all beings be free. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.